Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show and a happy new year. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. Hello from The Athletic. This is Phil Hay. Hello and happy new year. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Happy new year, everyone. Get yourself signed up to and subscribe to The Athletic where you can read all of Phil's stuff. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. What we got for the new year there, Phil? What's in uh, What's in the locker? Uh, we've got a review of the year, which just runs through pretty outstanding 12 months. for Leeds United. Quite funny, really, isn't it? It's been a grim year globally, but actually... Yeah, anybody following Leeds, it's been the year of your life. Give or take, uh, we'll have uh, reflections on Spurs as well, where the intention is to write about Ilan Mesley, who has been rather outstanding this season. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up now. Well, we'll have a look at 2020 in just a little bit. First of all, let's reflect on what has been a pretty good Christmas week, all things considered. Six points out of six, 23 on the board now, and Leeds looking pretty good for survival this year. It was 9 out of 12 as well, and I think the point that people were trying to, to make or to cling to after that pace in at Old Trafford was that out of the four games, the, the three that Leeds really needed to win in terms of the bigger picture were Newcastle, Burnley and, and West Brom. I think, like Bielsa said, on the day of the Man United game, you, you would rather have won that than anything else, and you would have pretty much foregone everything else to win over there. But when you step back and, and see how the table's looking now, you you do realise that they've that they've been on the money on the days where it, it really mattered. And 23 points now, which I thought it was interesting to, to see, and I hadn't realised this, that they're a point ahead of where Sheffield United were after 16 games last season. And if you remember the, the credit that Sheffield United were given, and rightly so, because you can't deny it was a, a very good season from them, you know, it, it puts in context, I think, again, the performance of Leeds under Bielsa and also some of the, the criticism that they've had. It's, it's turning into a pretty outstanding year if they can keep this going. I was just thinking nothing can go wrong and then you mentioned Sheffield United and it's now made me fearful for next year already. A terrible warning from the future because they're in an absolutely shocking state, aren't they, at the minute? Yeah, it's strange for them because they, Chris Wilder has done so well over such a long period of time that he he almost looks like the only manager in the world who could survive in that job if they finish with two points at, at the end of the season. I do think the longer this goes on, the harder it's going to be for him to stick in that job, just because you, you're going to slowly and, and surely get a you know a, a groundswell of negativity and, and frustration around the fact that they're struggling to, to get points together. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily the worst team in the league. I, I don't think we've seen a worse team than West Brom. Uh, and if I think of the, the game down at Bramall Lane, which was pretty tight and pretty close, and I thought Leeds were worth the win in the end, but there were moments in that, particularly in the first half, when, when it could have swung... Sheffield United's way, they, they've probably been unlucky not to pick up more points than they have. And I think two points is not necessarily a fair reflection of, of how they've played, but you really can't see them getting out of this at all. Um, and as I say, you, you might find that they're able to stick with Wilder because he is so heavily in credit down there, but it does become more and more difficult. And, you know, already they must be thinking about how they're going to shape up for next season and, and try to do what, what Norwich are looking like doing at the moment in the Championship. I think with Sheffield United, the thing is that the momentum's got away from them as well. So that was an early season game, whereas they're under tremendous pressure now and they'll be demoralised, won't they? So it starts to build over time, does that that lack of confidence? The momentum went a little bit at the back end of last season as well. They weren't great during the restart. Again, they weren't awful, but it, it all went a bit stagnant and went a bit stale. And I think they'd almost blown themselves out by that point. It was difficult to to sustain the form that they'd have had previously. And they've never really picked up from that point. I, I do think that, had they got a few more points on the board very early, had a couple of results gone for them um, in the, the first month of this season, it would look very different. And I think, they, they, like you say, they would have a little bit of impetus. 
but it's completely vanished and they're now 21 points behind Leeds mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the, and the gap to West Brom after that win um, is, is 15 points without counting chickens that's a huge amount of ground to cover if Leeds are going to get sucked in by either of those two so it's um, you know it's it's looking good in these parts it's looking pretty dreadful down there Just on some of the criticism Bale's received following that Man United defeat and then looking at Sheffield United I may have missed it but I don't think I've seen many articles saying that Chris Wilder needs to change his style No And they have two points Which is a, a really good point and that narrative narrative didn't really develop at the back end of last season either when things started to, to go a little bit wrong for them I was sort of saying after the Newcastle game that the, the bizarre thing with Bielsa is that, as I say, they've got a point more than Sheffield United did um, at this point last season. It, it's 10 years now since you've actually needed 40 points to stay up. It tends to be more around 36, 37. So they're already a big step towards making sure that, that they've got a second season in the Premier League coming. And 16 games in, 23 points. And you've got people telling Bielsa that he needs to change. I, I don't see it really. I think there are aspects to his team that can be criticised. And I think set pieces in particular, that it was pretty obvious in that spell that, that it had become a weakness and, and was a bit of a soft spot for them. Although that's been the case really for, for a lot of Bielsa's time in charge. But it felt, I think all of us felt that there was a big overreaction nationally after Old Trafford. And that seemed to contrast as far as I could see with actually some pretty realistic opinions around here and quite a high level of tolerance amongst the fan base who wouldn't have enjoyed getting tonked by Manchester United. But I think people are able to see the bigger picture and, and are able to realise that you'll go from that result and win against Burnley, win against West Brom, turn it around fairly quickly. That's been the key, I think, so far for Leeds is that it's never set in. Even when they've had poor results, Palace and, and Leicester, it hasn't then developed into five, six, seven defeats in a row or, or five, six, seven games without a win. They, they always seem able to pick themselves up again. And, you know, you, you go back literally two or three weeks to... Tim Sherwood talking about blowing a gasket and burning out. And then you look at them coming off the back of a really, really hard game against Burnley on Sunday, making no changes and absolutely smashing West Brom down at the Hawthorns. They look they look in, in excellent shape, I think. You mentioned set pieces there. That was the thing you're one to watch from last week when it came to West Brom. Wasn't a problem, was it? We absolutely talked them. Wasn't a problem. I think two things against Burnley and West Brom, I think they've def- defended them better. We noticed right at the start against West Brom um, that rather than having uh, the man on the byline as close to the corner taker as possible, um, Bielsa had put players on each post. So you had Harrison on one, um, you had Rafinha on the other. Um, there was an instant down at Chelsea where the very first corner of the game where Harrison was on the near post for that, but it isn't what he tends to do. So there did seem to be a little bit of a change there and, and a bit of a tweak which suggested that they had been working on it and, and had been looking at it. But Basically, the defending of them was was it improved, and you had Meslier who was coming for the ball, was trying to punch something he doesn't normally do. I think trying to be a bit more proactive and and to help out in that sense. And what also helped down at West Brom was the fact that they just could not get anywhere near Leeds. There were the odd set, there was the odd set piece, there was the corner, the odd free kick, but it wasn't overwhelming pressure, um, and they looked hopelessly disorganised um, all over the field. So. I think having suspected that, that Allardyce might be able to make that work for him, actually, the, the way the game went, it was never going to be a saving grace. What was it like being in the Hawthorns though, when that first goal went in? Because it took me time to realise that it had even gone in. We were, we were watching it together, weren't we, Michael, here in the studio? Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh, it, it's gone in. It's a sort of moment that where you expect it to be disallowed. You expect something to have happened that's that's caused that, um, that either a foul or um, or something else because it was so bizarre and so weird. I mean, you see it on goals all the time, and West Brom managed to score 
in scoring goals in each of the last three meetings with with Leeds. But the previous two, you know, like Bartley's at, at Ellen Road, it was more a case of sticking a leg out to try and block a shot and, and diverting it in. That from Sawyers was just a kind of blindsided punt. We we were chatting before we came on air. Michael was saying you, you kind of taught to always try and play the ball as often as you can back to a position where if it bobbles or the goalkeeper misses it or makes a misjudgment, it can't go in. You know it's going to run out for a corner. So Johnson had positioned himself beyond the near post and, and Sawyers has just hacked that into the net. And there was a, a kind of three, four second period of confusion and bemusement where everybody sat there thinking, is that real? Has that really happened? And there was a bit of celebration from the Leeds players, but you know, Michael was also making this point. You, you kind of don't want to rub it in too much to fellow professional. I think most people were standing around thinking that was a bit odd. But I, I have to say, I think Leeds would have won that game regardless. But it made a huge difference because suddenly, you know, the tactics that Allardyce was going for and his idea that West Brom likely had at Anfield were going to sit deep and we're going to pack in and, and then we're going to going to nick something at, at some point was just totally blown apart. And, and unlike Liverpool, Leeds were able to, to come on strong and, and to kill them pretty quickly. Has he got the right players to play the way he wants to at West Brom? Because it feels to me like the, the team they were last year, which was... Their, all their best stuff came from in the when they were attacking and it seems like he's tried to make them a defensive team and they don't have anything like the right resources to do it I don't think they do and, and I don't think they have good enough players to stay up to be quite honest I, I was kind of saying you, they, it felt like watching a team who were in, in the wrong league and it's pretty remarkable that you've gone from a period in June early June where it was it's kind of neck and neck between Leeds and West Brom in the championship to a situation now where they look light years apart and you can tell that one team have invested and developed and improved and, and one team at best have stood still but have probably gone backwards. I think it's it's probably irrelevant as to whether or not he's got the players there to do it. I think he was always going to do it regardless um, and he will no doubt try and get players in this transfer window who can help him with it. But you start to feel watching that and, and the bottom line at Anfield was that Liverpool weren't particularly precise and, and weren't particularly ruthless. So it left West Brom in the game and, and they were able to take a point. But our West Brom writer, Steve Madeley, was saying it was pretty suicidal what they were doing in the first half at Anfield. And it would only have taken a second Liverpool goal to have completely destroyed that performance and to have made it look you know, mildly ridiculous in the way that, that it did at the Hawthorns against Leeds. So I don't think even play, playing like that, even if it starts to work for you or, or even if you start to understand the system... I don't think it's going to get you enough points to get you out of trouble. I think you've got to you've got to win games and you've got to win games by being offensive. And I remember just right before the end of the season talking to Rory Smith from the uh, the New York Times and he said the reason I think Leeds will do well in the Premier League and the reason why they'll be fine is because they'll play to win. And if you play to win in the Premier League, you you tend to win games because you will find a lot of clubs who who aren't quite as positive. And here we are on on 23 points and can even I jinx it from here? <laughs> Give it a try. Shall I? Yeah, no. Guaranteed a second season. Not quite, but I mean, if the benchmark is going to be around about 36, 37 points, you'd be hideously disappointed now if, if Leeds fell short of that. And as I say, they, they just look like a side who are going to lose from time to time and probably going to lose quite heavily because that's what they tend to do. But in amongst that, they're going to win plenty of games as well. So of course, Leeds do always fade at the end of the season, as, as, as we know now. Yeah, well, I mean, we will talk about that. And in, over Christmas. In due course, yes. Well... There was a bit of contrast with the, the Burnley game, which was we made, well, it's a lot heavier weather, wasn't it? We made heavier going of that one against um, Sean Deitches. And that's, an, that's sort of an uber-pragmatic style is, is what uh, Deitch has done. And we were talking, was it last week or the week before, about the sort of style of, of British manager. And we were, we were speculating, do you think that, that era has kind of gone? What, what do you take from these two games then? 
I thought first half against Burnley we looked relatively comfortable, but the second half it was very hard going, and I was I was just expecting them to score at any point. I think the difference between you see between those two games because on paper you kind of lump them together a bit, don't you? As British set piece managers, but Burnley have been doing it for a lot of years and doing it well, and it showed because they they were actually able to put some pressure on us, whereas West Brom just looked so disorganised they didn't have, didn't have a chance of doing it. You were saying they made heavier weather of it on a heavier pitch as well. Bielsa won't ever criticise the pitch. And when we were asking about it, I think it was last season, his argument was it's the same pitch for both teams in the same way as it's the same oxygen that you breathe and just get on with it and, and do what you have to. But you do wonder whether it's slowing the tempo of the game, whether it's taking a bit more out of the players' legs because the surface isn't great. I mean, it's not a secret that it's a really old pitch, you know, really old drainage system and it will get replaced sometime. I, 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 my understanding was it was supposed to get replaced before this season, but... Like the floodlight, floodlights and everything else, it's it's not been possible because the the break between the seasons was too short and all the other numerous complications. Um, so I suspect that will be a priority when this season finishes, and and it would make a, a big difference because the the ground staff always say that Bielsa likes it to be short and fast and and ideally wet as well. You know that's what he he looks for. I thought Burnley played well in the second half. I, I'm not a particular fan of them or or their football in the main, but they were the better team without any doubt. And the, both of the games kind of summed up something that Bielsa talks about. He, he, he'll he tell you regularly that he thinks Leeds are at the best defensively when they attack, at the best defensively when they play high up the field, when their attacks finish, as he says, usually in the final third. Because your goalkeeper's at arm's length, your goalkeeper becomes a bit of an outfield player. And it's very difficult for the opposition to construct their own attacks, starting from the edge of their own box. What you found against Burnley was that Leeds were hardly able to get out of their half or not in a, a way that was causing any danger to Burnley. I think completed a total of 12 passes in the final third in the second half, which is minuscule number, you know, almost like un, unheard of figures by their standards. And, and Burnley were able to, to put the pressure on. And, you know, it was a really good defensive performance in the sense that it didn't concede. And, and you know, the back three in particular of Strike, um, Phillips and, and Ailing, I thought were, were fantastic under a lot of pressure but in a lot of ways I, I suspect Bielsa would tell you that the defensive performance at West Brom was far better even though it felt that Leeds were under um, that there was no threat from West Brom because they pinned them back and because they did what tactically Bielsa wants them to do so it was a slog against Burnley it was hard work but I don't know about you it felt to me like a big result it felt to me like the more difficult of the two games Burnley and West Brom and again just hitting that 20 point mark was clearing a, a pretty important threshold I found it quite stressful watching it, but with the aid of hindsight, it felt like a good a good victory. I was like, I was kind of pleased that we did that sort of dogs of war thing to to get three points there. The game it reminded me of was Barnsley at the end of last yeah. season, where it was one that we just it felt like we just needed to win because I guess when you are totting up where your points are going to come for, from for survival, Burnley at home is one where you think that is essentially a game you could do with winning. Is it, it's not at this stage of the season because we've had a good start, not exactly must win, but certainly one that you'd at the start of the season you'd chalk down as three points. Yeah, I must have been talking to myself because one of the lads from the BBC said to me afterwards, I'm sure with about five minutes to go, I heard you say, this reminds me of Barnsley, this. Um, and it was the same. And I think because you see so few games like that under Bielsa. I mean, I, I struggle to think of any others really that, that compare. You know, even in, on the days when they've lost heavily in the championship, like away at West Brom, it was wide open and it was it was end-to-end. It wasn't that sort of mad onslaught where you're, you're wondering if they can they can hold out. It, it really doesn't happen very often. I mean, once Rodriguez came onto the pitch for them, it was he had three strikers on the field, and you know Barnsley did something very similar at the back end of last season, and it does actually seem to be 
a way to unsettle Bielsa's team, but only if you find yourself in circumstances where leads are backed up and, and in a bit of a corner. And because that's quite difficult to do and because you don't see that regularly, it's it's not as if you know managers across the country can say to themselves, right, let's play with you know three three man forward line. It's it's not you know in terms of the percentages, it's it's a big risk against Leeds. But it did work for Burnley, and I thought they were extremely unlucky not to to get anything from the game. To contrast it with West Brom, and we should probably revisit that because I think Leeds are due some extra credit for what was a brilliant performance. But the stress of Burnley uh, versus West Brom, which actually was quite enjoyable for the most part, wasn't it? From pretty much. I would say that second goal, when we went two in front, you kind of knew this is probably done as a contest and then it just ran away from them as you're heading towards half-time. And it, we had that rare beast of being able to sit back and just go, ah, oh, this is great. West Brom's whole game is... Big Sam would be quite happy to just play the last 10 minutes of every game at 0-0, mm-hmm. wouldn't he? If he, can, if he can make the game as short as possible, that's absolutely fine for him. So for it to be over after half an hour is... Like I say, it didn't feel like they had two goals in them. There didn't seem to be any jeopardy in that game at all. I think... West Brom, Michael, um, Burnley, sorry, Michael's right. In the first half, Leeds played pretty well. There wasn't an awful lot coming from them. Um, Dice seemed to be able to flick the switch of the press at the start of the second half, and they were far more aggressive and, and played further up, up the field. You never got the feeling that that was going to come from West Brom. And I thought even before Sawyer's goal, Allardyce said what people tend to say, which is we were pretty comfortable up in, until that point. I mean, it was the ninth minute, so it's not much of a claim to fame. But you hadn't really sensed anything coming from West Brom. I was keeping a, a close eye on on the passing stats because you knew that, that Leeds were going to try and pass them to death, which which they did. And there was nothing there was nothing coming from Allardyce's team. It wasn't piecing together in Leeds half. It wasn't really piecing together in, in their own half. So it came back to that, you know, that old routine of are Leeds going to score? And if they don't, then they could, you know, could end up getting picked off. But if they do, the chances are that one nil is going to run to four or five, which it which it did. And and you know, there was a bit of a drop-off from Leeds in, in the second half, I felt, which wasn't a problem and, and didn't matter at all. But I thought in the end, West Brom were a little lucky to get away with five. Star performers then at the Hawthorns. I'm really liking it. I like Rafinha. I don't think he was necessarily his best first half because he was um, marked out of it for a, for a lot of that. But he's just got that something about him. He's just got that, that swag. Difficult question, that. Um, I, I thought Dallas had... I, I went for Rafinha in the end, um, partly because of, of that goal, which was a... A cracking finish. In fact, a lot of them were. I, I thought Harrison's was the pick of the bunch just because of the intricacy of it and the you know the the tight marking that that was going on. It's a great finish from Rafinha, but again, West Brom just let him run into space and and let him get on his his left foot with Harrison. There was that lovely little one-two with Bamford, and then great little turn to to send Furlong the wrong way. And I think when that went in, that was when you you kind of thought to yourself. I, I said in my report, like Furlong went to the wrong fire, and it looks like West Brom have come to the wrong division. Uh, it's just you know golfing. Golfing class. Dallas had a very good game, I thought. Dallas has had a lot of good games this season. I think Dallas has had a lot of good games for a long time now. And and it seems extraordinary to me that you can be or, or look like a quality Premier League left back, a quality Premier League right back. You can drop into midfield and play there if you need to. And I don't ever feel that Dallas is totally comfortable there, but he, he a lot of the time he does absolutely fine. And I thought I thought Phillips again was was Fantastic. He's had he's had two big games at, at the right time, and ailing as well. One of the things that I love about no crowds in the stadium, and and you can count those things on pretty much one finger, is the fact that you can listen to what's being said. Um, so it's been fun hearing Bielsa and quite insightful, you know, hearing Bielsa and his staff what they say, and the way in which they, you know, they they chirp at the players. Very good, Patrick. Or again, Bamford. Again, move, and all, move. This is move, Tyler. All all this stuff. 
but ailing, who pretty much swears from from start to finish, um, but really does keep everything in order and is actually, I think, a, a very very good leader at the back. I, I think is very well suited to that. And there's an interesting point in the first half where West Brom kind of appeared from nowhere on on the right wing, and I could hear him shouting at the players out wide, "Don't foul, don't foul," which was specifically the order of "Don't give away cheap free kicks because then we've got to defend them," you know, and. It's just it was just a, a bit of intelligence and and a bit of of common sense and and defensively. I mean, it was interesting actually. Um, ben Cross from Leeds Live asked Bielsa afterwards whether he thought Ailing could convert into a centre back longer term. You know, if he needed to. And Bielsa said, "Look, he's a very very good right back. You know, that's the the bottom line." But having over the years sort of been only semi convinced by Ailing at centre back, he, I, I would say that his best games this season have come there, particularly Aston Villa away. Um, but another another cracking showing um, at the Hawthorns. And a word please for Alioski, who seems like he's having a jolly nice time at the minute, who, who provides great entertainment for us and a brilliant finish. Well, as we, we said a, a while back, I think a month ago or so, it, it looks like he's going to get a new contract at Leeds. And and I think the point about the contracts is that they only come or they're only going to be given to players who Bielsa sees as, as very much integral parts of, of what he's doing. So clearly, you know, he he's happy to see Alioski stay. And, and you can... You can see why. I've always felt that Alioski has been better as a, an impact player off the bench than he has necessarily as a as a starter. And I think defensively he's been he's been quite mixed at, at left back. But he's another one, you know, like Clake and Dallas and, and others who seem to have coped really well with the the step up. It's it's not to say that in the longer term they're necessarily going to be players who can play in the Premier League for five, six, seven seasons on on the bounce. You know, you'll we'll see with that over time. It doesn't feel to me like anybody's been left behind. It really doesn't. I, if I think through the core of the players who are playing regularly um, and are, are heavily involved, I'm not really looking at any of them and thinking, do you know what, they're going to be a problem this season. Longer term, perhaps you'll, you'll need to replace some of them and, and that's what good teams do and that's how you evolve. But at the moment, you can see why they're, they're planning to have a pretty quiet January because they don't really need to do anything. The full-time whistle at the Hawthorns wasn't the end of the story, though, was it? Because we have seen the fallout from comments made by pundits. Yes, this is a this is a really really wide issue actually, and it touches on all sorts, um, from Twitter abuse to banterous official club accounts to punditry to opinions and everything else. I mean, this this goes back to pre-match comment from Karen Carney, former England international, um, who was talking about Leeds fitness and fitness levels and actually was saying some pretty complimentary things about Bielsa's team but then threw in the line and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit here but essentially that they were promoted last season because of COVID um, the idea being that the break in the season from March until it restarted again in, in mid-June was a bonus for Leeds because it allowed them to reset and to refresh and essentially to avoid that old cliche of Bielsa burnout which obviously around here we don't really accept and don't really subscribe to but is definitely definitely gained traction in other parts of the world and, and through his long career. So what we got at full time was a tweet from Leeds using a video clip of her using that that quote. Um, just a bit of a wind up really, which they've done previously and have actually been been doing for a long time. And, and I have to say, it's not you know an accidental thing. It's a deliberate strategy at Leeds. They like to use the, the Twitter account for that. But it was it was in in you know wider quarters badly received. And um, there were a lot of female journalists who felt that it was instigating a pile on on Carney. I think there were a lot of people who were concerned that it was going to lead to sexist and misogynistic abuse of her, which which it did, which it did. Yeah, and, and but because Twitter is Twitter, it was always going to. 
that was always going to be in part the result. And there was a lot of fair criticism of her, and you know there were, there were a lot of comments that that didn't stray over those boundaries. But unfortunately, it was you know you knew that that certain people were were going to cross the line. So the question became: Should the club have been able to look ahead, and should the club have been able to preempt what was going to happen with that? To which I think the general feeling, including mine, is yes, they should. Yeah, I think from the club's point of view, there is a a question of whether it's worth it. I think. I mean, it's yeah. not to say they don't have a good point because I th- I thought what she said was a terrible take. Yeah, and, I agree. and can be quite easily shot down. So I'll tell you what. Let's let's get to the question of whether it's worth it in a minute. Is there any truth in the statement itself? First and foremost, no, I don't think there is. In part because the results prior to the shutdown were five wins, no goals conceded. I think Leeds were probably flying at that point as impressively and convincingly as at any other time under Bielsa. They they were starting to look comfortably like the best side in the division. And bear in mind as well that through the lockdown, he cracked the whip, did Bielsa. You know, it, it was the same routine of morning weigh-in sessions. It was regular training as, as much as they could do at home. Ailing said to me when I interviewed him that if they got Sunday off, they were lucky. If they got Sunday and Monday, it was a, a massive bonus. But pretty much to the extent that they could, because obviously they couldn't train together. It was constant and it was hard. And and that was why when they came back, you'll remember Adam Forshaw saying that he thought promotion would be a formality. The reason that people felt like that was because they sensed and suspected that they'd worked harder through that period than than anybody else. So it wasn't as if it was used for recuperation and clearly there there weren't any games. But the thing about Bielsa's training is that when you're in the thick of it and when you're, you're involved with it and you've got him on your back, you don't get any respite. Anyway, so I I did think it was a poor opinion. I didn't think it was a particularly valid opinion. I, I think it fed into the whole the whole burnout debate, which is far more nuanced than than simply saying Bielsa's teams always drop off to the you know towards the the end of the season. I think that is that has followed him around ever since that first season at Bilbao. And as I always say with that, I think you have to look closely at the the pressure they were under in terms of fixtures and the fixture list and and where they were travelling over Europe for um, Europa League games. You know it was incredibly tough and, and he'd probably pushed them above the level they'd been at previously and it was hard to sustain but that isn't the same as saying that his team's inevitably burn out I, I just don't I, I don't think that's I don't think there's enough in that to be able to say to, to use that as a kind of sweeping judgment so it was absolutely legitimate and, and fair for people to call that opinion out what I think was unfortunate and, and pretty unedifying was the fact that it did stray into the, the abuse that followed. I, I also think, and it's important to say this, that to some extent she's been a victim of the fact that there has been some really poor punditry this season, I think. And and people are far more aware of it because everybody is watching at home now. People are not at games. Um, I've seen much more of it because there've been a lot of away fixtures that I haven't been to. And because of that, you're watching on the telly. So you hear what you would, norm- would, would normally just go over your head, apart from people alerting you to it on on Twitter, and it's got to the point now where I think people are actively looking for this. You know, they're actively looking for people talking out of turn or saying things about Leeds which either aren't fair or, or aren't particularly accurate. And in general, I actually think Karen Carney is a really good pundit. I like her Five Live stuff. I don't hear much uh, much of the rest of it because, like I say, I don't often often see her on on television coverage. But I, I've always felt that her Five Live coverage is really insightful and and very good. I just think she was, you know, she was off the money with that one but it didn't deserve the sort of avalanche that came. I mean, you go back, Michael, to 
coming back from uh, the the break, the lockdown break, and we played all our games in what thirty two days was it? We played those games. It was a game every three or four days. So surely, if a team was going to burn out, then they, that's when you would have seen them burn out. It felt to me like it was a throw a throwing out an opinion that was more or less repeating something she'd heard someone else say, which I think is happening a lot with punditry this year. Again, maybe there's because there's so many games, or maybe it feels like people aren't being prepped enough in advance of these things. But it just felt it felt like a lazy opinion. It felt like someone you'd you'd hear someone ringing in on Talksport and saying it. It was it was like Bon Lahore level punditry, which I I think admittedly I don't watch an awful lot of punditry stuff because I tend to switch the games on five minutes before and turn them off five minutes afterwards. So I've not seen a great deal of of other people. But I guess then when I do see bits of punditry about Leeds, it tends to be the bad bits that people are highlighting. But where I have a degree of sympathy for as well is that we do this and it's obviously all recorded and it's put on the record forevermore, but we have the luxury of of time in that if we need to expand upon something and we've maybe made a point that seems on at first glance a bit controversial, we can explain it as much as we want. We can also edit it and say, I'm talking rubbish, stop this, we'll redo this bit, yeah. which you don't have on live TV. You might be you might have someone in your ear saying saying 30 seconds to the break. You need to just finish this. Just just say what you need to say. Get it done. You've got 45 seconds to say it. And it doesn't leave it a lot of space for nuance there. Yeah, I, I do have sympathy for her from that perspective because, I mean, you know, but for the benefit of the listener, my background before this was doing live broadcasting and it's easy to find your mouth just saying stuff while your brain's thinking about something else. Or maybe if, you've, if you are slightly underprepared, you are just falling back on preconceived biases or general points that you've heard before, such as, well, Bielsa's team's burnout. You might just do that. And and there, there is a question, and I tweeted this out actually from the Squareball account, asking the question of, do we possibly need to look at the at the, the producers who are, are they giving them the right resources? Are they arming them with enough time to prep? It, I mean, it does fall I, I, on the, on the I, shoulders of the, of, the, of the broadcaster to prep themselves as well. It does, but, yeah. But the producers are responsible as well. I, I've, I think I've said previously on here that Danny Higginbottom, who's moved to the States now, he's gone to Philadelphia with his family, but used to work on, on Sky Sports, um, would always call for about 45 minutes before a Leeds game to run through the whole team and to talk about the tactics, things that have changed, the forms, like Bielsa's demeanour. You'd go over old ground that you'd been over with him, you know, hundreds of times, but it was just to make sure that he understood or had a, a clearer picture of what was what was going on. I mean, it might be that if you, if you spoke to Carney, she would say... Look, I, I shouldn't have said that, actually. It was a, a poor opinion. It might be that she would say, what I said wasn't really what I meant, or at least there was more to it than, than the way it came across, which would be which would be entirely fair. I mean, I would contrast it to what Tim Sherwood said about Bielsa's team after the West Ham game, where he said, they've blown a gasket, this team, and they're supposed to be the fittest team in the league. I mean, that is a dig. I think that's a deliberate dig. So if, if you get called out for that, and if it's not based on any kind of factual reality, then you have to you have to suck it up. I think as much as I totally disagreed with with what Carney said, it didn't feel like that was what was being done. It didn't feel like she was sort of deliberately trying to discredit Leeds or was was trying to have a dig at, at Bielsa or his players. It just wasn't an opinion that when you looked at, at how last season went really made any sense. And as I say, I, I had no problem with people calling her out for it. I did have a big problem with it straying into you know, sexist abuse. And I think, you know, to, to take this on to a wider point of the discussion, I think there is a question to be asked about whether or not it's appropriate for a club to be doing that. Do we all just care too much? Should we just be more willing to let let this flow over well, us and just think, what does it even matter? Well, shall I tell you, my answer to that is, it's to do with like the voice of authority though. And when I say voice of authority, I mean like 
Phil's got a voice of authority because of the job that he does. And I understand what it means from a perspective that I did the radio. And when you watch TV or you listen to the radio, you trust the people that are on it. It doesn't necessarily mean they've got authority, but the medium itself gives you the voice of authority and people expect to hear the truth coming out of it. So it's difficult when you have that sort of trust in the medium, you expect it to be accurate. And when it's not, it's annoying. And the problem is when you're broadcasting like they did and the comments that that came out of Amazon to an audience that's probably more knowledgeable on the topic than you are, it kind of imbalances that voice of authority because actually the fans know more about what is being talked about than you do and it, it undermines the whole point. Everybody talks bollocks from time to time though. I mean, I was saying to somebody on Twitter yesterday, I've never deleted that nailed on tweet and I have no problem at all with people tossing that at me from time to time because it, it was it was in the end absolute drivel. You know, like the, the playoffs weren't nailed and Leeds didn't get there and, you know, that, that kind of stays there for, for posterity in the same way as, you know, Sherwood saying they blew a ga- that you know, they've blown a gasket and then Leeds sticking five past Newcastle. You can't dodge one just because it, it doesn't fit with, with what comes next. Are people too sensitive? Probably. I mean, everybody's very defensive of their club. I think people are probably more defensive of of this regime and Bielsa in particular because of what he's done. And and there is a slight issue here, I think, that there does seem to me to be a bit of resentment in the the wider world about the credit Bielsa gets and the kind of way in which he's he's fated around here. But I think you have to have been as close to Leeds as as we all have to understand properly what he's done. You know, where, where Leeds have gone from the Christensen, Heckenbottom era and, and the, the many years before that to where they are now and, and not even just promotion. You know, now mid-table, 23 points in, in the Premier League playing like they did at, at the Hawthorns. It's been, it has been properly extraordinary and I do think it's it's easy to underestimate that in the wider world. You should take notice of it though and I think one of the things that proved that was the way that Bielsa spoke on Christmas Eve about, you know, the coverage of the, the Man United game. He was ultra-defensive in that and and... I don't think he would accept that it was a good result or it was particularly flattering. And he did make the point in it, like, I don't want people to think that I'm not hurt by this or that it wasn't, you know, quite humiliating that because it, it was. But he obviously took umbrage with the, the things that were being levelled at him and his players, particularly the idea, it, you know, the, the question to Bamford about would you ask him to change his style obviously got under his skin because he, you know, he referenced that specifically. And I, I think from time to time, you you do have to challenge these things and not just not just nationally, locally as well. We we all get it wrong from time to time as well. And Bielsa will come at you, but in a very professional and detailed way, you know, intelligent way. I think there's a big difference between Bielsa answering criticism by giving you 45 minutes of analysis of his team and Leeds as a club answering criticism with a, a tweet like that. And and I do think you'll see a change in tack now from them. I think, you know, I, I think they, they realised yesterday that it hadn't gone well. And, and also it was kind of ridiculous PR to have on the back of an outstanding win, you know, 5-0 win away at West Brom. Is that really what you want the next 24 hours to, to be to be dominated about? And it seems to me that there's a pretty obvious lesson from this. I mean, you did say, you used the phrase, uh, nuanced debate in that chat there, Phil. And that's what we've lost from, well, probably from punditry, from from Twitter, doesn't really embrace it, does it? We We generally fall on one side of a fence or another. Politics is like that these days. So... That kind of, you know, you see Bielsa who goes into these deep, intricate explanations, but it's also been fed into the same pond that has Gabby Agbonlahor in it, you know, and and it's just that tedious level of punditry where there is no nuance versus this kind of deep, intricate, colourful, subtle stuff on the other side. But everyone kind of, it all exists in the same kind of 
space, doesn't it? On that, actually, Phil, like, how do you have any insight as to how people get chosen for TV? Because when you see people like, because Hasselbank's also pretty dreadful, I would say. He, I've seen, and he's watched Leeds a lot as well, and still has some strange opinions. I, I, I do I wonder. I do wonder if his brain and his mouth are connected sometimes. If, if he doesn't just say the first thing that comes into his head, because uh, you just sort of look at those those two are on the, on the weekend, and you think would it not have been better to have, for example, you on it. Not, not, I'm suggesting you've got. I mean, obviously, people don't want to. People have seen your face enough, I'm sure, to know to know that you you shouldn't be on television. But um, followed by five days of <laughs> accusations of national national bias. You know, um, it feels it feels like there are probably more clued up people who could be put in front of a camera at this point. In the same way as BT, maybe have people on like James Horncastle or something like that. People who write about these things and watch and watch football in a lot of depth. Yeah, I mean, James is one of our our writers at the Athletic and really knowledgeable knowledgeable about Italian football. There's a balance to strike because there's no doubt at all that having played the game or managed gives you a different level of insight into different aspects of, of the game. And there are plenty of people who never played and never managed who can do really, really good analysis as well. But in terms of, say, for example, burnout, I think it helps to have been a professional player at a high level, the sort of level Bielsa is managing at, to be able to discuss that you know, in a, in a sort of physical sense and, and to give insight into what it would be like, you know. So the, you, I think you, you want to mix, really. As for how they're chosen, I genuinely don't know, but I, I suspect there will be times where, given, especially at the moment, given the number of games that there are and the amount, the amount of televised games, where you're, you're looking for who you can get, you know, you it's a case of who's who's available. There, there are, obviously, you have um, most of the broadcasters established pundits so on Sky for example you've got Carragher and, and you've got Gary Neville and, and they the same as us they'll be diaried, diaried for games you know and, and we'll go to them other than that I don't know the honest answer is I, I don't know I wouldn't expect them to ever ask me to come on as a pundit if they did I'd probably get battered all over the place for being too <laughs> too pro leads um, which might be might be a fair accusation but yeah I think as I say to go back to a previous point I think part of the reason why the, there was the pile on um, with Carney is that people have been waiting to pile on um, and increasingly enthusiastic about piling on because some of the punditry has not been great. Let's be honest. It does make me wonder though if you've got the experts on and we you know go back to that phrase of the voice of authority. I've not been a professional footballer, so I would have liked some insight from Carney maybe about that, like her experience of I got to the end of this season and was tired or you know whatever. Or when you find when you have a break from football, you come back with more energy. But it wasn't. It just felt like a lazy trope that was trotted out. It's a trope that I could have gone on there and said, or you could have put Gabby Egbonlahor on there to say, or Tim Sherwood or anybody. So if we're getting people on there as, let's, I'm doing air quotes now, experts, then give us the actual expert opinion. Don't just trot things out that have been done to death. I think that's what that's what people don't tolerate anymore. That's no. what I think the, the, the lack of appreciation is all about when it comes to fans listening to this. It's like we've heard this a thousand times before. What are you offering in terms of journalism or punditry when you say stuff like that? After the Burnley game as well, it was on Match of the Day 2, it was Leon Osman was on there and he was saying they did a five-minute feature on Leeds never changed their style of play, but look at this, they've gone to three at the back against Burnley. And any Leeds fan will say to you, well, yes, that's that's what we always do. Always. When there are two strikers, that's not something that's changed. We've not changed that for Burnley. That is something we, we do for every single time yeah. and it just felt like a waste of airtime and I, and I was I think I did tweet about that in fact because I just thought this is this is pathetic like no one has looked at any of our previous games clearly uh, you have to be fair as well and say that you can't expect people who don't follow the club all the time to have forensic intricate knowledge but I think as I said with about Higginbottom there are ways of finding out and there are ways of, of being interested in it and of digging a little deeper into to what's actually going on you mentioned like Bonlahor there there was a 
naturally a lot of talk on Twitter yesterday as it was all blowing up about the fact that that kind of lazy line of she wants equality or people want equality for women, but then when they get attacked, suddenly it's unfair because she's she's a woman. And there are a couple of big differences, which is that when you're a male pundit, you very rarely get told to get back in the kitchen or, or anything like that. It doesn't stray, it, it strays into abuse, but it is undoubtedly, and I know this for a fact, um, because I've worked in, in journalism for, for 20 years now, and particularly in football, it, it is heavily, heavily male dominated you know, almost to the extent um, in certain periods where we had no women on the, the sports desk at the Evening Post um, and that did ebb and flow. But, you know, it, it was it was mostly men and it was mostly men like me, white, middle-aged. And it has been a, a kind of, it's kind of been a niche for certain people for, for such a long time. So it's difficult to get into. And I think somebody like Carney and, and other female journalists as well, they, they do need additional support. They do need extra support. They, they need to be spared the sort of abuse that she was getting um, after after that tweet was sent. And also, with, with Ag Bonlahor, I may be reading this wrong and he may say otherwise, but it seems to me that that he's almost enjoyed getting into the back and forward with Leeds fans. You know, there's been the... the Fish, fishing emojis, we get loads of it. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you're if you're taking a lot of abuse or, you know, taking some, some big hits from people on Twitter, you're entitled to dish it out. The difference is that he has, you know, and, and so it's been a bit of a back and forward. And I think uh, I think your mate Emo was saying there was a bit of a feud there with uh, Agbon Lahore. It, it has been, you know, this has been going on a little bit. I don't think Carney would be in any way interested in starting that. And I don't think she would want to, to come on and, and kind of defend herself by having a, a, a dig at Leeds fans or, or by, by starting that fight particularly. So I think there are, there are circumstances in which, you know, that sort of banterous humour is appropriate. There are situations like Tuesday night in which it, it probably isn't. And I think that the proof of the pudding of this will probably be in the fact that Leeds will, will pull back from this and, and we'll do less of it or be more careful with it. I think from our perspective as, as fans, though, we've seen, or maybe we need to separate out the issues. And one of which is that the misogyny and the sexism was in the overwhelming minority, first and foremost. And you can, to an extent, just say, look, they add nothing to the discussion. We have to ignore those people or challenge those people, whatever it might be, however we choose to deal with it, that's fine. But a bad opinion is still a bad opinion and should be there to be challenged because pundits are there to provoke a response in the audience in the same way that us three sat around this table now are here to provoke a response in the person listening to this. So you can't shield her completely from any form of criticism. I think that's what it feels like. And I think there's probably a feeling amongst our fans that there was a certain amount of circling of the wagons and, and blue tick journalists maybe weighing in and, and seeking to protect Carney um, completely from any form of criticism whatsoever, or maybe blurring the boundaries of the misogyny and the criticism itself, which are two separate issues. Yeah. The one thing I would say though is that, and, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, that on Twitter, you tend to focus on the more negative stuff that comes at you, don't you? It's like human nature. You You can have a thousand people telling you that this was great and you're doing this brilliantly and then you can have a small minority who are telling you no you shit or you you know you 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 don't deserve that job or in her case you know sexist comments and everything else and that is probably the stuff that she's reading and, and which is registering in her head and then you know to take it a little bit further you can ask how constructive it is to tweet like that is that a constructive way of you know approaching poor punditry or, or criticism i think as I say, it felt different to me with Sherwood because that that felt like a, a deliberate attempt to to dig Bielsa out. Whereas I think with Carney, she wasn't trying to be derogatory. 
you know, I don't think that's what she was trying to do. It was a poor opinion. And, and I, as I said, I don't think it, it was valid, but I don't think she was looking for a fight. You know, I don't think she was trying to pick a fight. I certainly don't think with hindsight that the way to go about it was necessarily a quick tweet like that, which which did encourage a, a pile on. I mean, it's not as if Leeds are the only club to do it. I think important to say as well that in, in no way would Leeds, by doing that, have wanted it to lead to sexist abuse or misogynistic abuse. I just think that... The thing, sh- thing is, though, Phil, I, I knew as soon as I saw it that that's what had happened. So therefore, why didn't they... And, and why didn't somebody there think do you know what, this is what's going to come off the back of this. And and even though she perhaps deserves, you know, to have those comments flag, flagged up, isn't this a sensible point at which to be a bit more discreet and, and a bit more responsible and to say, do you know what, we'll, we'll let this one pass? Because I'm like you. And, and I do think now that they reflect on it, I think people at the club will probably say to themselves, do you know what, this was always going to happen. And, and probably at the point at which that tweet was being drawn up, we should have thought to ourselves, this is not the best idea. I would disagree slightly on the content of it. I thought it did come across as a little bit snide. I read it a bit as you've only done this, you've only be, you've only been able to do this because you've got lucky, which I think I don't think is particularly fair on the way the players have applied themselves over the last couple of years. No, not at all, and, and that's the point that Radrazani was trying to make in the reply that he he made to somebody on Twitter, where he was saying, "Look, I think this is disrespectful for the effort that's gone in and the work we've done and, and the way that we've played," and I don't disagree with that at all. I, I think it's separating the the two issues here, which, as Dan said, you know, on the one hand, you cannot be a pundit and expect people to to just tolerate what you say regardless of what you say. You know, people are gonna gonna come back at you. And I've found that from the you know, the point at which I started this job. It's it's the way it goes. And and I, I've always felt that if you're gonna have opinions, so are other people and, and they're gonna sometimes they're, they're gonna meet in the middle, sometimes they're gonna bash heads and and that's the way it goes. But I think you have to accept that in those circumstances and, and with a tweet like that, there are people who are going to cross the line because there are people on Twitter who just cannot help but cross the line. And there are people on Twitter who, who just cannot cannot be constructive in circumstances like that. A lot of people were, a lot of people I think said what, what needed to be said about the comments, but I think because of what it led to and because of the extremes that, that it reached, it would, would have been better if that hadn't happened. The first game of 2021 is upon us and it's Tottenham Hotspur away on Saturday. Uh, before we get into that, a quick reflection on on the year 2020, which was Quite poetically, it's quite nice how this has worked out. It was bookended by a trip to the Hawthorns, West Brom, uh, New Year's Day 2020. And we finished up the year at the Hawthorns again, this time with a 5-0 win. And as you said earlier on, Phil, one hell of a a journey and a step forward we've been on across 2020. With the exception of that period around the Forest game, there hasn't been any downside to it for Leeds. I mean, clearly COVID is going to cost them financially and, and everything else. And it's still, I think it will probably always slightly rankle with people that when promotion did finally come, it, it wasn't able to come in the way that it should have done. And, and you know, and it, with the, the kind of mass celebrations and, and three week stroke, three month bender that, that would have followed it. But I think what mattered back in, in July when they won promotion and, and won the title was that it was able to feel like a moment. There must be a lot of people who are feeling very disengaged from the football at the moment because you're never there. You're never able to feel it in the same way. You don't have the same routine of going out beforehand, going out afterwards, sitting with the people that you used to having around you in the stadium and being in a in a packed Ellen Road. So it is very different, but it was just utterly magical, I thought. From the Hernandez goal onwards that week, and the Barnsley game played into that because it was so horribly tense. You know, it was it was like that feeling of purgatory that you had to go through for the last time before finally you you got over the line. And you know, the the night of I remember the just that that little buzz 
when Huddersfield scored against West Brom and it was so late in the game and you knew that West Brom had to win that you thought this is this is actually going to happen. I, I, burst, I burst into tears. This is I, <laughs> I, I felt like bursting into tears. You thought this is actually going to materialise and this big 4,000 word feature that I've written on Bielsa isn't going to have to get spiked and binned at, at the last minute. And all the way through that weekend and right up to the Wednesday night when they, they got the title, it was just, it just made you tingle. Um, and it, it felt that even though it wasn't as it should have been, it was still something that you'd, you'd never, never forget. And I love that. You know, I'd, I've, I've said quite openly, I, I didn't think that the second series of the Amazon documentary was anything to, to write home about. But I thought the last section, when you've got Bielsa talking in, in the background, it's just glorious. That, and, and, that last half an hour, sorry, I was just going to say, it gets me every time. If I have a bit of a bad day, I'll put it on from the moment. I think it's about the Swansea game, about yeah. half an hour from the end. Stick it on from there onwards to the end. Gets me every time. Yeah. And because it meant so much to him, you know what a big deal it was. He, he's not somebody who gets emotional about things, not in that way. You know, not not in a sort of touchy feely, passionate, emotional way. He's not that that type of person. But even he couldn't he couldn't resist it because it it meant so much. And it was it was just a wonderful in a really really awful year for a lot of people. It was it was a wonderful wonderful period that. You know, I'm just looking at the results from the start of 2020 and we started at the Hawthorns with that draw and then we lost to Sheffield Wednesday at home, lost at QPR. We beat Millwall in that silly game, 3-2, but then lost to Wigan and then lost at Forest. And then after that point, it's basically wins all the way through to the end of the season. But that that period in January was Leeds doing what Leeds always do. It's a club completely unable to, to shed the demons from its from its own shoulders. If you think back to Patrick Bamford a year ago as well, because he came off the bench, I think, at the Hawthorns. And scored, score. yeah. Mm-hmm. But to that point, it had been Bamford's not really good enough. And I think he came on and was a big improvement in that game on what we'd had before. And that was maybe a slight turning point for him. Not saying he didn't receive more criticism as the season went on, but it felt like Nketiah left at that point as well. And it was just, no, it's Pat Bamford from now on. I feel like his year has been almost a, a kind of microcosm of Leeds in that period as well, in the way that it's gone from this horrible, tense never quite good enough feeling to all of a sudden relaxing and being brilliant. And he is the probably the, the the totem for all of it, isn't it? The, the releasing of that pressure, being able to just relax into himself and his own skin. And, and that's what it feels like we've done as a club. We've kind of, we've shed that, that the, the monkey off the back. It's gone, hasn't it? Because we've got the promotion and it feels like we've just streaked ahead by light years since August. It's validation as well, isn't it? So you get promoted and suddenly the argument of Bamford isn't good enough. Well, Clearly he is, and is Bielsa up to it, and can Bielsa's um, teams last the pace? Well, yes, they can. Is Alta's recruitment and, and you know management as director of football, is it satisfactory? It's it's better than that. Yeah, Yes, it is. Is Radrazani a suitable owner, top to bottom? Pretty much, yes. Um, you know, Kinnear is chief executive. They're, they're doing the right things, and, and things look very different when it doesn't work and when it doesn't happen. And I think that was one of the, the things that was, was on or one of the problems with Bamford was that because it wasn't happening for the club and because they weren't quite getting there, everybody comes under you know a bit more scrutiny and, and the failures become far more obvious than the, the successes. The good things you do are of less interest to people than, than the things that you can't do because there is that permanent tension of this might go wrong again, you know, this this might not happen. And and you knew with Bielsa that it was going to be limited time frame in the championship and that it you know it had to come good at some point, otherwise the whole project was blown and, and he'd be gone and, and you'd be starting from from fresh and Phillips again. was gone as well Phillips would have gone absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, and Phillips I mean the backstory to that I think is is one of the, the really fascinating subplots the fact that he was so close to going to Villa 
um, the previous summer. I don't think anybody really realised that. We we knew that that Villa were were keen. We knew that they were they were bidding big. We knew that Leeds didn't want to want to deal, and we knew that they were always hopeful that they'd be able to keep him. But it was only when I spoke to Phillips after the after promotion at the end of the season that that he said, you know, the. There was a point where I thought I was going. There was a point where I thought I wanted to go. You know, I think there was that thought in his head of, is this actually going to happen here? And will I regret the fact that somebody's offering me the Premier League? And, and I, I say no. And I, I just love the fact that he did say no and that he stuck around. And then a year later, it happened. I also like the fact that he admitted to thinking about it as well, because it would have been very easy for him to, for PR reasons, just to come out and go, I would have never left. This is my club. I love it. A bit like Alan Smith did yeah. before going to Man United. He, he could have said that, but he to come out and go, do you know what? Yeah, well, I had the adds, option. It, it adds to the feeling of how much it all mattered, doesn't it? To to realise how much of this stuff was kind of on strings and and ready to to drop if it if it did go go horribly wrong, and it will forever be one of the most unique years, I think, or unique periods that Leeds have, have ever had. This, you know, it's diff- I think without having been there, very different to to Reavy, very different to to Wilkinson. Similar similarities in in some senses, but. It has been Bielsa's era and, you know, I, I think I, I always feel that in 15, 20 years time, no matter what goes on in between, you'll remember this as clearly as you do now and, and you'll look back and say, do you know what, that's that's where it all started again. And there's something remarkable about 2020 as a year. It's going to go go down in history forever as, you know, the year of coronavirus. And, you know, on, on a personal level, I've had, I've had some stuff happen in my own personal life. That's it's probably been one of the hardest years of my adult life. Like my son was in hospital, you know, fairly recently. Some of the most challenging times. And yet I will always look back on 2020 as probably the best year of my life, football-wise. It's just, it's crazy how there's, there's such contrast in, in that regard. I feel oddly ashamed at how well I consider 2020 to have gone yeah. <laughs> because I'm aware it's been an awful year and it's been it's had more or less nothing good about it other than Leeds United which I guess shows you what the point of football is to a large extent that you can have you can have some joyous moments in there even when nothing else is good but if there was one club that deserved a bit of joy in the worst year in living memory it was definitely Leeds I mean I've not spoken about it on here but I had some counselling about the time after the lockdown because of, like it was depression and anxiety was, was diagnosed and I had a really I struggled with the first lockdown and then we came back and I remember texting you Phil and explaining this to you and saying if there's one thing that a Leeds fan doesn't need it's, it's anxiety <laughs> when this is on the line but it, it felt like everything was absolutely on the line didn't it and uh, yeah it's, it's been so strange that there was that on the one hand and then this just perfect moment that microcosm that Pablo Hernandez goal and all the stuff that kind of followed from that is that it makes me emotional thinking about it. And I know I'll, I'll remember it forever. And I think we all will. Well, it's New Year. So I've brought you in eight cans of Tenant Super Strength. And really, I should have um, bought it for you back then. Because if there's one thing that's going to cure anxiety, if, if only for 24 hours, it's, um, it's a few cans of Super Strength. But yeah, it's not going to cure the depression, though, is it? After eight cans of Tenants. Christ. Right, um, back to Spurs then, and then this weekend. And it's lovely nice, lovely and nice to be mid-table in the Premier League at the start of 2021. That's all right, isn't it? That is fine. I think this is why the anxiety's not returned yet as well, because we've always felt back in the Premier League just above that relegation fight. And now we, we seem to have pulled clear and Phil says it's going to be fine. So You still can't? No. Uh, let's, let's get another five wins and then we're fine. Yeah, that seems fair. That seems fair. It's just all so relaxed, isn't it? You're going to Spurs at the weekend thinking, but it's the wind down there, wouldn't it? But if they don't and if it doesn't go right, it's fine. You, yeah, you say, well, it's Harry Kane up front, it's on behind them, it's, you know, quality team, it's it's Mourinho. That's 
that's life. And I have to say, I've really enjoyed it, but it has taken some adjusting from that anxious drive to Forest or Bristol City or wherever else. Well, and, it, f- it felt like everything was on the line every game, constantly, didn't it? Yeah. Constantly, no matter how big the gap was. You know, even when... I, I remember everybody getting, including me, getting torn to shreds on the way home from Cardiff. You know, the first game back after the lockdown. This player's not good enough. That was a joke. You know, we were supposed to be really fit. Players look rusty. This, that and the other. Phil, you're a twat. Um, <laughs> and you'd, and it was, even though the gap was still, to Fulham, was still seven points and there were eight games to play. And you, you're thinking, yeah, it was, you know, it was a bit off colour today, but... But let's wait and see. And that's what had built up. You know, that's how it, that's the point at which it got to in the championship where, like you say, no matter the, the circumstances, every game felt like it had to be won. Otherwise, there were going to be, you know, recriminations and, and big consequences. Whereas it does feel, it does feel pretty placid and nice in the Premier yeah. League. Well, the fact that we're going to Spurs with a chance. And that's the thing about Man United. I mean, we said in, in the run up to Man United, it would hinge on individual quality versus. Bielsa Ball, and as it was, their individual quality told in the end, and Bielsa Ball was maybe a little bit subpar, wasn't effective enough, didn't happen, but it's the fact that we are going to, to Spurs with a chance. If things go right for us on the day, if, if our plan works, we might get something from, from that, and isn't it just nice to be in that situation? And if it doesn't, like you say, it's, it's fine, we get to go again the week after. Speaking of it not happening, are we going to have a break on that on that? side of things first because there is talk of a, a two week break isn't there? Uh, the the Premier League are resisting this as, as fiercely as they can. There are definitely clubs out there and I don't think Leeds are one and Leeds clearly haven't been, they've had the, the positive test for Rodrigo a month or so ago now but they haven't been badly affected by COVID but clearly other clubs have and there is a bit of chatter out there from certain clubs who would like to see, for want of a better phrase, this circuit breaker thing where you have a couple of weeks or three weeks to delay uh, and just to delay and let everything reset and let people who are infected recover and, and to let everybody properly isolate again. Needless to say, the Premier League don't want to do that because it kind of gets you into that routine or into that mindset of thinking that things can stop and things do need to stop. There's obviously a lot of money at stake, again, with broadcast deals and, and everything else. It's going to be very hard to resist, though, if you keep getting postponements um, and if you keep having problems. It doesn't seem credible to me to just plough on if it becomes a, a real mess and and obviously you know the Tottenham have got, had a bit more of a break this week because the Fulham game was called off um, Man City again weren't, weren't able to play over at Everton they can't have too much of that otherwise the, the league will get badly out of kilter so as it stands it, it looks like well you know the Leeds will be off to Spurs as, as agreed and then we've got the FA Cup after that but you know again you've got the FA Cup next weekend which it's problematic in, in its own right. I know there's going to be testing and, and everything else, but there hasn't been any compromise anywhere with competitions this season. I always found it utterly bizarre that when, you know, Rick Parry and Liverpool Manchester United were, were throwing out Project Big Picture, they were saying in it, if people agree to this, we'll get rid of the League Cup, which kind of gives you some idea of how much the League Cup's valued by people. <laughs> but then at the same time, ramming four rounds into September because it evidently does matter that much that that you play it and you've had all the internationals you know none of the international breaks or those periods have been used by have been able to be used by domestic leagues their leagues to spread the fixtures out which you know would give you the scope for postponements at this point or a little bit of a break so that's the other problem is that then you run into scheduling issues and you're supposed to have the euros um in the summer as well which seasons will need to be finished in time for and it's a it's a right royal mess, and it does feel as if nobody wants to let their competition or their you know their priorities slide. And because of that, you're in this in this mess where 
you're trying to ram everything into what is a truncated season anyway. Um, and it doesn't leave a lot of leeway. Uh, so is there going to be a break? I think it'd be quite difficult to avoid, but it does. I mean, the Premier League issued a statement last night which said the Premier League has not discussed pausing the season and has no plans to do so, which is their way of saying through hell and high water, we will play this out unless we're uh, we're forced to do it. The only thing I would say about that is that there was a very similar sort of statement back in March, which dropped about 40 minutes before Arteta tested positive down at Arsenal. And then, you know, the following day, everything stopped. So stand by your beds, really. Have the Premier League or the individual clubs looked into the vaccine, like a sort of private... Um, private acquisition of any of that because then obviously there's there's a lot of doses and they're quite rightly being given out in order of priority but is, is there any possibility of Premier League clubs kind of jumping the queue on that? I haven't heard anybody talk about that but it is not going to look good for them if they if they try. I think it, from PR point of view it would probably not be great. It would make sense in, in as much as try to get your players vaccinated and then you know it, it takes out that uh, that threat to them. But given the, the number of vaccinations that need to be done in the country and, and the you know, the the pressure around that. I'm not sure it would be particularly well received if the Premier League started trying to muscle into that queue. Back to Spurs then and um, and the weekend. And what do we expect from this? Uh, are Spurs going to sit a little bit deep and try and hit us on the break, a la Man United? I think it could be a very similar game. I don't mean it'll be a similar outcome, but I, I, I can see it being pretty toe-to-toe. And I think if Mourinho has watched that game at Old Trafford, which he will have done, he might like the thought of, Spurs matching up to Leeds and then using Son and Harry Kane, you know, players with superior talent to to do the damage going forward, which might well be how it it plays out. But there's been a bit of criticism of Mourinho the last few weeks. I I haven't watched the games closely enough to know whether this is fair, but the feeling that when they're 1-0 ahead, they're not trying to turn the screw, they're not being as as aggressive as as they should be. So I I think there's something to be be taken from this game, again, if, if Leeds play well. But I think... I look at this like I did at the Manchester United game. Head says yeah. Heart says yes. You know, Leeds could get a result down there. Head says it'll be really difficult. The fact that it's on the table, as I was saying before, is is a good thing. I'd be happy with a point from this, but you know, never never rule out the win. I think Phil's hit the nail on the head with Kane and Son because they are arguably the two best strikers in the Premier League, and we're going into it with a right back and a young centre-back alongside him and it does feel a little bit terrifying. Yeah, but we're dead good, aren't we? I mean, and they've not been too bothered, have they, in the last couple of games? They have looked very good, so why not try and step up again? But yeah, I'm in the, I'm in the mindset of anything we can get out of this is great. Equally, if we can lose it 6-4 again or 6-2 or something, that'd be fun too. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It could it could be 6-4 we, or we might run out winners or we might get a draw. It could be, it could be anything and the fact that we're not going into this thinking oh well let's see if we can get off two points at the foot of the table well you've had in other seasons it was Mick McCarthy wasn't it who in a in a bit of fixture congestion just basically played the reserves I think at Old Trafford because he essentially just went we're not winning that think about the next game and at least we're not doing that it feels like we we will go into this and give it a go and we will play to win on this well if there's one coach who's never going to do that it's it's Bielsa you know he, he might bend slightly for the, the FA Cup and, and the League Cup which he has previously before but but not in the league I mean there were questions to him a week or so ago about Phillips and Clay who had obviously been sitting on, on four yellow cards are you going to rest them are you going to leave them out of the team and you just have to laugh really because I mean he just would never do it. It, it he would never sit and say do you know what we'll, we'll leave them out at Tottenham because it stops them stops them crossing the threshold or, or we'll leave them out at Old Trafford because that you know for the same reason it's just not in his mindset he would just play them at some point they get booked, at some point they get suspended, at some point he just brings in somebody else from the academy or moves one of his defenders forward and says, right, get on with it and 
crack on. I mean, I love the fact that what we sixteen games in, thirty goals scored, thirty goals conceded. It's it's absolutely immense, and and it's great entertainment value, and it's it's much it definitely much easier to be entertained by it when a lot of those goals are leading to good results. I think if it was thirty goals scored. 30 conceded and Leeds were down where West Brom are. People would be having kittens. But for now, it's it's great fun. Mind you, after all that positivity, I've just realised Spurs, they've had an extra break, haven't they, due to COVID. So they're going to definitely win due to COVID because that's how it works. <laughs> well, maybe if, maybe if there's a mid-season break, we'll win the league still. Who knows? Easy. Right, one to watch, Phil, where we ask you to pick a player battle issue, whatever it might be, a key feature of the upcoming game. Uh, what are you going for versus Spurs? I'm very much looking forward to Ailing against Kane, and I'm disappointed that I'm not going to be down there because I would love to. I would love to hear Ailing during this one with with Son coming off the left and and Kane coming at him. But as I say, he's been really good at centre back, really really good, and I think it will definitely be in his head, not least because he's an ex Arsenal boy, to make sure that when it comes to dealing with Kane, he'll be right in the front of the queue. I need to say it doesn't come as a surprise you're not going down to this with eight cans of tenant super sat on the desk here. There's no way they're letting you into that Tottenham Stadium. I'd have got the train. I'd have got the train. Yeah, I'd have been I'd have been fine. I wasn't planning to drink eight cans of that and then drive. <laughs> right, well, happy new year. Hope the um hope the Spurs game brings us what we want. And we will see you on the other side where we will talk about the Crawley FA Cup game, assuming that one makes it. In the meantime, do have a look at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up for that if you want to read everything that Phil's been writing about and all the stuff from the football and sporting world as well. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.